Welcome back to our 15 on the 15th, our bite-sized book club series featuring podcasts designed to help you digest short articles, no more than 15 minutes of reading required. This 15-minute recipe for success is a pent of insightful reading, a dash of engaging discussion that blends together research and classroom practice. My name is Katie LaShawn, and I'm the director of the English as a New Language program here at the University of Notre Dame. Today, we are diving into one of our favorite topics, children's literature, and how literature can be utilized to support our English language learners on their journey of school and language acquisition. Our starting point is with an article written by Giso and Campagno in 2013 entitled Ideologies of Language and Identity in U.S. Children's Literature. This article may be found attached to our podcast and on our website. Here to help us unpack this topic in a two-part podcast, um, that's our little hint for you to be able to join us next month, is Claire Roach. Hi, everybody. Um, and Dr. Erin Limro. Erin is a former Catholic school teacher and a mother of five beautiful children. And Erin is a faculty member here at the University of Notre Dame in multiple departments, including the First Year of Studies, the Institute for Latino Studies, Education Society and Schooling, and the Center for Study of Languages and Culture. We are very fortunate to get just a few minutes of Erin's busy time today. Erin, thank you for joining us. Might you tell us a little bit about yourself and how this topic of multicultural literature came to be so near and dear to you? Okay, thank you, Katie and Claire. I'm really excited to be here today. So multicultural literature really goes way back for me. Both my parents hail from New York City. Um, my mother is Irish, you know, from an Irish Catholic background, immigrant background, and my father comes to New York City by way of French Canada, hence my last name, Lemoreux, which was an anglicized Lemoreux French name. Um, so as New York City folks, um, they definitely had a different way of imagining the world, of being in the world. Um, they grew up around many different ethnic groups, um, Though, you know, church going often was split down ethnic lines, so their their parishes were often Irish or Italian or French. Um, they lived next door to one another, these different populations. Um, so in the 70s, I guess I'm dating myself, but when I was, <laughs> I was born, I was born in Michigan. So I'm the only child of my entire extended family born in the Midwest. So kind of the social experiment, if you will. Um but trying to navigate the Midwest from this kind of other perspective through my parents was always something that was unique to me and something um, that I routinely found myself navigating as a young person. So um, every summer, you know, come June 1st, we were in the station wagon headed eastward to visit with family for the entire summer. So um I guess in that way, I feel that I'm kind of bi-regional, trans-local, right? I had a lot of work to do as a young person. Um, but it was interesting, and I will always thank my mother and be so, you know, just, just I'm so appreciative for her um, understanding of that unique task for me. Um, I remember as a young person in schools knowing I was different in that way, right? That we were, um, you know, at least physically, we were... Um, crossing borders, so to speak. Um, we, were, we were mobile. We were um, kind of on the go a lot. And, the, and it really was kind of some, some different world navigating work for me as a young person. Um, but my mother 
I think she picked up on this. And so even as a very young person, I remember specifically, we had books at home that she purposely, I don't know where she found these books. It was the 70s. Um, but there, <laughs> there was, I remember to this day, there was a book called like, This is New York, right? And it was like this urban scape children's book that had pictures of the then Twin Towers or the Empire State Building or the subway, right? So this kind of other world. And I knew my only opportunity to kind of revisit familiar places for me was through these, this book, this one book in particular. And then, you know, ultimately she found other little treasures kind of, you know, throughout time. But for me, the book was always a tie back to this other world that I knew. Um, and I didn't always get those kinds of invitations from school literature and texts. So for me, my personal interest and in, in kind of history has always colored my now adult interest in wanting to kind of cultivate and provide access to these kinds of other worldly books for children. Absolutely. Erin, I think that's a perfect bridge to one of our questions, which is, why does this matter for schools? Why does this topic matter for our English language learners? And why does this matter to all of our educators and school leaders who are listening? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, when we think of schools, um, and we have uh, folks who are, you know, purposed with creating wonderful curricula, and we have teachers who are, you know, wonderfully tasked with delivering that to young people. And even under just the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, right, which seems so kind of devoid of any world <laughs> crossings or, right? Um, I think it is our job as educators um, um, to, to kind of imagine those tasks as ones where we can invite and honor students' backgrounds in schools. I think, you know, you know, historically we have seen schools as a place to kind of sanitize our own histories, our own languages, our own um, rich knowledge, right, from these, these experiences that have us travel or that have us understand the world differently. But I challenge everyone to see schools as sites that will honor those same rich knowledge backgrounds um, and find entry points for um, bringing students' voices to the table, right, and, and, and allowing them to explore reading, writing, and math. Yes, math, right, in ways where we can um, use scripts, use texts writ large that, that honor um, the, the myriad of backgrounds that students are bringing with them into classrooms. Yeah. Thank you very much. So I have a very nitty-gritty question, yes. but it's something that the article spotlights, mm -hmm. spotlights and I think um, perhaps it's helpful for teachers to understand the difference. So I am hoping that you might explain the difference between a multicultural text and a multilingual text. Absolutely. Um, and I think that does need clarification, right? Sometimes we hear these buzzwords, right? Um, and we may think we know what they mean or we'd hope to know what they mean um, and, and really truly understanding that they are are different but they are connected as well um, it is a good is a good designation to make so for me multicultural is the idea that um, we can come at curricula uh, a reading a literacy curricula with um, a celebration of multiple cultures and for me this is not a capital C high culture only the arts only um, uh, you know kind of um, surface level cultural celebrations the big you know obvious uh, you think uh, Mexican-American you might only think pinatas well that's part of it of course but there are much more deep and embedded mm -hmm. practices that go along with um, 
with with culture with what I'll designate as a, a lowercase c. So the everyday practices of you know a, a cultural background, which might be the food we eat, it might be the way we envision the import of family, it might be how we speak to one another, um, whether or not we um, use different languages, and I'll get to that in a moment as part of multilingual. Um, but multicultural is the idea that, in particularly in schools, we can celebrate multiple cultures. Um, so, you know, for an English as a new language or an English language learner perspective, that means honoring um, the home cultures of Mexican-American students. Um, or that might also mean honoring students from East Asia or from, you know, wherever our students come, really. So multiple, multicultural is honoring the different entry points and narratives that come along from different, perhaps, um, geographical spaces that yield different cultures, different cultural practices. Practices. Whereas multilingual, and I touched upon this just a bit earlier, is the idea that with these cultural practices, often in these different geographic regions, often come different languages. Um, so for the United States, currently, you know, the the, the most popular or populous language that kind of finds itself in schools nowadays is the Spanish, right? So the idea that something can be multilingual is the idea that we can honor Spanish language in English classrooms um, without it having a negative impact on the language learning of English. And I think that's a really great point to make that um, multicultural, the celebration of cultures and the nuanced practices of culture in everyday life, as well as the language that goes with these cultural practices can be brought into classrooms without subtracting from all the other good work that happens. And so part of what I hope we can discuss today is that these honorings, multilingual, multicultural, are additions in addition, an additive framework, not a subtractive one, right? They don't detract from the learning that goes on in English or in math or, or what have you. But I do think they require teachers to stretch. Absolutely. Yes. And one of the things that I that I really appreciated about this particular article is obviously these researchers stretched to find the texts that they thought they were that were particularly um, illuminating, but also that they caused me to stretch in the way that I think about a text. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we're going to visit some of the themes mm -hmm. in these texts, but I'd like to put in um, just a quick observation about the difference between multicultural and multilingual. Mm -hmm. I think that most teachers um, at this point feel reasonably comfortable. Mm -hmm. It might be a stretch to find multicultural texts that really honor the experience of the diverse practices and experiences of their students. Mm. But what I have encountered is that um, multilingual texts can be very challenging for teachers who don't speak the secondary language mm -hmm. that's evidenced in the text. I was actually mm -hmm. invited into my student, my, my child's classroom two years ago because the teacher recognized that this that the text, and it was a text in the basal reader, went in and out mm -hmm. of Spanish. Mm -hmm. But she was mm -hmm. so uncomfortable pronouncing the Spanish words right. that she didn't feel like she could read the story to the kids. Mm -hmm. And it it dawned on me in that moment that this is an experience of a lot of a real experience right, right. of a lot of teachers in right. the classroom. And I'm curious if you have any advice for educators who have found perhaps mm -hmm. a multilingual text 
about how they might wrap their head around it, literally how they wrap their sure, tongue around it. From sure, some, from absolutely. Time to time. Good absolutely. And it is a good question. I think it's one based in practice, mm-hmm. right? So that's um, great. Uh, so what I'd like to kind of also kind of enter in to the conversation is the idea that we also see our students um, in their communities, you know, from which they come as, as resources. And so um, when I say that then, and I, I imagine I've worked with many teachers, oftentimes even, you know, new teachers out there just kind of starting out um, who really do want to honor and embrace culture and language and this kind of thing, but may not, you're absolutely right, may not have a background in Spanish or French or Arabic or whatever languages are, are kind of present, presenting themselves in schools. Um, but what I'd like to invite teachers to try to kind of imagine for themselves is that each student has an, you know, as an extension to a larger community and that those family members, for example, or church members or aunts, uncles, neighbors are all then now part of school, school, the school community, right? So bridging this homeschool um, disconnect and, and inviting them to be participants in classroom work or in school work, or in this case, maybe what I would imagine for, for, for a teacher would be for perhaps before exploring this book further or before presenting it as part of, you know, a lesson or a unit on, you know, whether it be multiculturalism or just a great story that also has Spanish language in it, um, would be to invite a, a family member, invite a community member to come in, maybe do a reading, um, perhaps one-on-one at first, so that the teacher can really feel um coached alongside you know a a native speaker but so that we're starting to kind of break down barriers and we're starting to invite um you know extended networks of people into the the schooling environment so the teacher feels supported but also the community member now feels like hey you know i'm valued for the knowledge i bring to this school setting and that can only be a good thing Absolutely. We really talk a lot about building bridges in, in ENL and in our program, but I love the idea of building bridges through children's literature. I mean, I think that's an absolutely gorgeous invitation to our community members, to our parents. Um, absolutely. And to recognize the expertise in our students. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, that bilingualism or multilingualism is a gift. It's a blessing. Um, that's not to put a student on the spot. Right, right. During a story, right, but approaching right. a student before the story and saying, Absolutely. listen, you have a talent that I don't. Right, right. I'm a little bit jealous. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could you could help be my teacher and help me through this too. Right. Which is essentially the same message that you're sending to the community. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. When you extend um, a hand. So, yeah, the gift mm-hmm. of children's literature. Yeah. One of the questions we really wanted to ask you was... Erin, what are some of your favorite books? And can you tell us a little bit about them? Right. And thank you for asking. Um, that's hugely important. Uh, and I think every teacher, you know, our, our libraries are never complete, right? We can always add one more book. Um, so I do have some favorites. Um, and one that comes right to mind, which actually um, is from one of the authors mentioned today, Matt De, De La Pena. Um, he's recently written a children's story called Last Stop on Market Street. And this one, much like the Subway Sparrow text, um, has an urban uh, backdrop, you know, an urban setting as, as you know, where the story takes place. And um, from different interviews that I've read, De La Pena really wanted the protagonist, which is um, a, a young boy and his grandmother, kind of as they kind of do their daily routine in, in around um, their urban space in California, um, he wrote that character to be read either as Latino or as African American. So he kind of knew straight away that this text could be taken up in different contexts and could speak to multiple audiences 
audiences. And so um, I, I think it's just an excellent, excellent text. It's very timely. I think it was just it's just come out. Um, and uh, it, it's a great text for honoring many of the themes that we've discussed here today, right? So family, intergenerational knowledge, um, you know, honoring urbanscapes uh, instead of always seeing them as maybe backwards or um, decrepit or dangerous, right? That these are, you know, filled with people who live wonderful, you know, lives there. Um, and, um, you know, so that's just an excellent text, I think, to have added to one's library. Um, there's another text and um, that centers around a character, Marisol McDonald. She's also biracial. Okay, the cutest little girl who kind of skips around and she's always mixing and matching. And it's, it's really this text, the second text is for a much younger audience, you know, a picture book, um, you know, early elementary school. But again, it's highlighting this kind of hybrid identity, hybrid language. It does have English, it does have Spanish kind of interwoven here. Um, but the theme, of course, is that, you know, for this particular character, she is always mixing and matching not only her identity, but her clothes and her taste in food, like tortillas and peanut butter or something like this. So, um, you know, again, you know, you know, from an early, you know, perspective, or early, early childhood's perspective, we can introduce these. These themes are not ones that are just solely um, reserved for high school, say, or junior high, quote unquote, when students are old enough to understand these issues. These issues are issues that enter the classroom the minute these students enter. So, um, you know, we can address them and embrace them as issues um, central to learning from the earliest, you know, ages. Absolutely. I absolutely cannot wait um, to go grab those two. And Claire and I have talked with Aaron, and we're going to go ahead and post to our website kind of a top 10 list from Aaron. So be able to um, be able to check those out, or you will be able to check those out. Um, Aaron, another question would be, where does the average classroom teacher go to find these books? Is there a, a list somewhere in addition to your list? Where do we begin to search for these books? And secondly, what does this practice look like? If I'm just starting out, and I know this is important, how do I begin to incorporate these texts into my classroom? Right. So excellent question, as well as one with a rather challenge for us all. Um, you know, and this really is a call out for everyone. So if anyone has ever felt like illustrating a children's book or authoring one, um, th the reality is, unfortunately, that only 14% of children's literature is written for by or about people of color, let alone Latinos, let alone multilingual audiences. So Unfortunately, starting out, we're already starting with such a small segment of the children's literature market. Now, do not get discouraged because there are there are ways and websites that you know specifically are looking to find these texts and then have them available to teachers of of, of all walks of life. Um, so. A website that I highly recommend, kind of as a starting point, um, is the We Need Diverse Books website. And this website is really an offshoot of um, some some work that Ellen O, educator Ellen O, O-H, um, has done in trying to kind of really um, um, excavate and find these wonderful multicultural um, children's texts. Because you're, you're right, um, you know, even going to my local Barnes & Noble, when I found finally the multilingual section, or even just the Spanish language section, um, the books took, the children's books took all of one shelf, right? So it's it's first of all, it's not an, an obvious task, right? And it's not an easy task. So knowing where to start our searches is, is absolutely, you know, crucial knowledge for teachers. 
Um, and secondly, you know, I, I want to highlight, you know, the article's um, suggestions here that even when we do encounter texts that celebrate multiculturalism or multilingualism, that we do take a moment, even, you know, the best, you know, illustrated books, you know, let's make sure we understand exactly kind of how the ideology is framed up in our texts. Um, and so that when we have texts that are celebrating um, assimilation or, you know, leaving behind the home language or identity at the classroom door in favor of English, Let's just make sure we understand that that's the message. And then we can invite students to, um, you know, open up a conversation about how this, you know, works or how it makes them feel or not feel. Um, likewise with other texts, just that we also be critical readers as instructors. We find texts, read through them ourselves and decide, is this appropriate for my classroom? Will this honor my students' identities? Um, and then go from there. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so deeply grateful for your time and for your expertise. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please be sure to tune in next time as we continue our two-part podcast series on multilingual and multicultural text. If you are passionate about ensuring that culturally diverse children and linguistically diverse children thrive in our Catholic schools, we invite you to learn more about ENL on our website, enl.nd.edu. On our website, you may learn more about our licensure preparation program, professional development opportunities, both online and at your school, as well as resourcing resources, including podcasts, articles, and webinars. And as always, if you enjoyed this month's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to our channel and share it with a friend. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a review for us on iTunes and let us know what topics you'd like for us to cover in the future podcast. Many blessings on your important work.